Striving day by day, you barely have the strength to pray in the valley low. And how hard your fight has been, how deep the pain within, wounds that no one else has seen, it's too much to show. And all the doubt you're standing in between, and all the way that brings you to your knees. He knows every hurt and every sting. He has walked the suffering. He knows. He knows. Let your burdens come undone. Lift your eyes up to the one who knows. Good morning. It's good to see everybody this morning. If you are a guest here at Conroe Bible Church, um, we want you to know that you're most welcome. We're glad that you're all with us. I have just a couple of quick announcements. Um, let me pull this up and I will pass them along to you. Next week, <clears throat> next week, right after the church, we have an evangelism workshop that we are asking you to sign up for if you would like to be a part so we can make sure and have enough food. You can sign up um, on Church Center or you can get there through the, the church site. You can do that um, to get signed up. Also, um, women's Bible study is about to start up a new study and you can be a part of that signing up through Church Center or the website. And the men have been going um, along for forever, but uh, you can also still sign up for what they're doing. I think they're still in First John. These are both on Thursday nights. So if you'd like to be a part, please get signed up for that. If you've got a kiddo, um, five-year-old five to 11, um, you can sign them up for Kids Camp that's happening at the, uh, the, third, the fourth week of June, the 23rd, 24th, 25th, I believe are the dates. Um, to get them signed up. And then also save the date if you're going to be around for July 4th because we're going to have a July 4th party here at the church right after the services. That's all I have. That was quick. <laughs> Anybody need me to repeat it? Okay. No, I'm not going to repeat it because you can, I'm, thank you for answering. I'm not going to repeat it because you can look at Church Center. It's all right there or the website. Would you guys stand up with us? We're going to begin with a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time right now. Thank you for our time together with our family here and with you. We ask that you would be honored by our hearts, by our eyes, looking to you this morning through our worship, through our learning. We pray that you would be with us and be around us. Make us more like your son today, we pray in his name. Amen. Upon the Lord, we will wait upon the Lord. 
strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord. Our God, you reign forever. Our hope, our strong
my song to rise to you when temptation comes my way and when I cannot stand up
Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Father, we thank you for your son and for the love that you have for us that you would send him for our sakes. We thank you in his name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. We have the privilege of observing communion this morning. So if you have not yet uh, picked up one of these at the back table, feel free to go do that now. And if you'll hold on to that, we will take this uh, together. and children, uh, parents, you can uh, oversee the worship of your children through this as well. It's open, open table, open to everybody that has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. It is Memorial Day weekend, and it's a weekend that we remember those who have given their lives fighting for our country, those who have given their lives fighting for our freedom. It's a somber day in that regard. I saw this week, uh, read uh, a veteran's uh, view of this day, and he he said that every soldier realizes that they are one round of ammo or one IED away from celebrating Veterans Day and becoming part of Memorial Day. That gives us a perspective on what this weekend is about. It's a weekend that we celebrate freedom. The same veteran said he thinks it's worthy for us not only to remember those who have given their lives, but to celebrate with the barbecues and the parties, the freedom that we have and the privilege that we have to gather like that. As long as we remember what they have done, and that should stir deep gratitude within us. But when we celebrate Communion, when we observe communion, we are remembering the death of Jesus Christ. The simple gospel is that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, was buried, and rose again from the dead. That's how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15. That gospel goes out freely to everyone. Jesus Christ left the privileges, the glory, the comfort of heaven in order to become flesh, to take on humanity. And he did that to reveal God to us. He did that to redeem us, that he might go to the cross. He gave his life for your life, for my life. He took on the sin of everyone who's ever been born, everyone who ever will be born, and every sin of you and me that we've ever committed and ever will commit. It's a mystery far too great for us to grapple with. But it's true. Scripture tells us that God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, we don't measure up to God's holiness, his perfection, The penalty is death for that. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died as a sinless substitute in our place. And if you are here this morning and confused about whether or not 
you have received salvation and your sins are forgiven, it's a very simple process of giving your life to Jesus Christ. Knowing that you are a sinner, that you're destined to be separated from God for all eternity. You can simply place your faith in Jesus Christ. Believe that he died on the cross for your sins in your place. And he will forgive your sins. And he will remove your guilt and your shame. And he will offer you the free gift of eternal life. That's his life. He enters your life to lead you and guide you. And so as we think about that this morning, as we reflect on Romans 5, 8, the verse I just quoted, I want you to give thanks for what Jesus has done. Because he's the one that left heaven, incarnated here so that he could take on our sin, die in our place, be buried and rise again. He lives again. He, he serves. He intercedes on our behalf. And he leads you if you have given your life to him. So I want to give a couple of minutes where you can talk to Jesus on your own. If you haven't received Jesus as Savior, I exhort you to do that this morning. Know his life, know peace, know life, know, know his love and his joy. But if you have received his life, give thanks. And then I'll close our time of prayer and meditation, and I will lead us in the taking of the elements to represent his body and blood on the cross. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we, uh, we owed a debt that we could not pay. It would cost us all eternity, separated from you. We are overwhelmed with gratitude that you would leave heaven, that you would become flesh, that you would be the way, the truth, and the life for us. And because we are overwhelmed with gratitude, we are filled with joy your joy. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to experience your love, your joy, your peace, your goodness, your gentleness, your kindness, your faithfulness, your self-control. 
We ask that we would live a life worthy of the freedom that you have given us from the bondage to sin and the power of sin in our lives. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for the supreme manifestation of your love for us on the cross. We pray this in your name. Amen. I invite you to take the cup and peel off just the very top layer with the wafer. First, and I will read the words that Jesus gave to the Apostle Paul when he framed this as an ordinance for us to observe. Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the wafer together. And now if you'll take the cup. Again, the words of Jesus speaking of the cup which he passed to his disciples the night before his death. He said this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup together. Jesus, thank you for pursuing us and initiating a relationship with us and taking care of all the work for our salvation that we might simply trust you and receive forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. We thank you for the grace that you offer us to experience communion with you moment by moment each day. And we pray this in your precious name. Amen. You can just set the cups on the floor, if you will. We'll pick them up later. And our children from K through grade 5 are heading out this door to Sunshine Kids Club. And if you are a guest with us and want to take your children, feel free to go and meet the staff. And uh, you can hang out or come right back. Simone Biles is the goat. Now, if you remember your athletic terminology, that means greatest of all time. She is a five-time all-around world champion and a two-time Olympic gold medalist in the all-around. She hasn't lost in competition since 2013. And as you can see in her, on her leotard on the screen, 
she has the image of a goat below all the rhinestones. That's pretty gutsy, isn't it? To uh, <laughs> let everybody know that, yes, I know I'm the greatest of all time to be the goat. Just a week ago yesterday, she performed a Yurchenko double pike. First time ever in competition. I'm sure everybody here has seen the video. If not, go watch it. The gymnastics world, the competitive world, is convinced that the International Federation of Gymnastics intentionally underscores her because she is so far above the competition. In fact, they don't think they gave her a high enough score for that. When she was asked about that idea, that why she continues to push herself and do things that nobody else can do, instead of just playing to the level of the competition, she looked at the journalist and said, because I can. Because I can. I, I like that attitude. Because I can. Well, today, in God's word, we're going to look at another woman of faith in our Woman of Faith series that I think would be on a short list to be the greatest of all time, to be a goat in the Old Testament. And her name is Deborah, and we'll find her in Judges chapters 4 and 5. If you want to turn to Judges 4 and 5 with me. I don't think Deborah had the personality to wear a rhinestone leotard, but then she wasn't competing. I do think that she would be on a short list as we look at women in the Old Testament to be a goat, a, a greatest of all time due to her accomplishments. She was given various titles by the Lord, titles she didn't go out to pursue on her own, yeah, maybe a couple of them, but mainly the Lord just called her and she stepped up. The first title that we see in, in Judges 4 is the title of prophetess, prophetess. She was there to give God's word, God's message to God's people. And as we see in Judges 4, she does that in battle. She is commander in chief, but she gives the word to her military leader, Barak. She's also called the wife of Lapidoth. So that's her second title. She is a judge in Israel. And that meant she was a ruler. She was a political leader. She was one that gave guidance and wisdom and insight. She had a tremendous role of leadership in Israel given to her by God. She was one of 12 judges between Joshua and Samuel, and she was the only female. And she, like Samuel, were the only two that were both a prophet and a judge. She had titles, and she had these because God called her to them, and when he called her, she stepped up immediately. Well, how, does, how did Deborah see herself? We're going to look at, Jack, at chapters 4 and 5, and in chapter 5, she refers to herself as a mother in Israel. Isn't that a great title? I know so many of you women well enough to know that that would be your first title, 
a mother. She was a mother in Israel is what she chose for herself. And she put that in a song of praise, a victory song that took place after the battle. She was a woman who was used by God to use this mother imagery to give new life to Israel. They were in sin. They were in dire straits. They were in terrible times, horrible oppression. And God used her to give new life. And he used her to create conditions to sustain that new life. For 40 years, they would find rest. She was God's chosen leader for that time. Now, the accomplishments and the leadership of Deborah here in the Old Testament do not alter the New Testament roles that we are given or the structure for church and home. But as we look at Deborah, I think it might alter the thinking of some people who believe that, that women just belong in the kitchen and with the children in the back. Let, let them be mother and that's fine. We don't want to go there. I think that we have a lot to gain from the leadership, the spiritual insight, and the wisdom of women, not just Deborah. When I look around our church family, I see women that give tremendous leadership in the home. I, I see women that give tremendous leadership in businesses alongside their husbands. I see women that do they give leadership in their own businesses as well. I see women that give tremendous leadership as teachers in their realm, whether homeschool or classroom. I see women that give leadership to co-ops, bringing numerous students together. Women that give leadership to innovative ministries. They see things that some of us don't, and they step up and respond to the Lord. And women that give strong leadership to ministries here at Conroe Bible Church. And I am thankful for all of that. I think what we will see this morning will be a key for us is looking at Deborah and understanding that she offers this leadership because she stepped up to serve God. And we don't want to, to just gloss over the fact that we weren't there. And we weren't experiencing the horrible oppression that they were experiencing. We want to look at Deborah as a woman who faced tremendous difficulty, carried on these roles, wife, mother, prophetess, and judge, in a horrible time in, in Israel's history. She didn't possess the athletic prowess of Simone Biles. But I think if she was asked, why did you carry out all these roles? I think she would say, because I can't because I can. And I'm convinced after studying her life this week that she could, she could handle everything that came her way. She could take it on and embrace it without lots of drama because she trusted God enough to obey him. She trusted God, but she didn't stop there. Like some of us do, she trusted God enough to obey him. She followed through on what he asked her to do. And I think that it just became a part of her lifestyle and who she was. 
She, could do, she discovered she could do so much through the empowerment of the Lord. So let's learn from this heroic, gifted woman willing to serve others through leadership. And I think it applies to any of us facing difficulties in this world, whatever the situation might be, whatever the circumstance might be for your own difficulty, to realize that the Lord still has called you to serve and in reality has some form of a leadership position. But I don't want that to muddy the waters. I want us to just simply learn from De Deborah on trusting God enough to obey him. Well, Judges 4 and 5, these two chapters are unique in their pairing. They go together. Chapter 4 is prose, and chapter 5 is poetry. Chapter 4 is educational, and chapter 5 would be entertaining. Chapter 4 gives us a historical facts of what took place, and chapter 5 gives us a musical rendition. It was a victory song of praise that Deborah wrote immediately upon the victory over the Canaanites, as we'll see here in a little bit. The interesting thing about reading chapter 4 and 5 is that chapter 4 is historical, gives us facts, walks us through what happened, but there's a lot of gaps. And that's where the poetry and the song of chapter 5 comes in and fills in some gaps for that, for us. We'll see that as we go through it. The story of Judges 4 and 5. God uses Deborah to lead a nation, the nation of Israel. And what we see is that God is working in Deborah and God is working through Deborah. And so right again, right away, there's easy application for us parallels. She steps up in every role that God gives her. So the situation in Israel is that the Israelites want to enjoy all of the earthly gifts around them, and they reject God's word. Now, they're God's chosen people, right? They're in God's promised land that he gave to them. And, and perhaps you can even see a, a little bit of a of a parallel for our lives where we really enjoy God's gifts and we really enjoy the world around us. And sometimes we reject very strong word, reject God's word. But anytime we ignore or disregard God's word, we're rejecting it as strong as if we shook our fist in rebellion. So these Israelites are in the land. They're in the land that God gave to them, that Joshua brought them into this land. And they are there because God wants them there. And he has asked them to wipe out the Canaanites. He says, if you'll go and, and, and engage them in war, then I will give you victory. I want you to get rid of them. But instead, the Israelites spent their time enjoying the vineyards of the Canaanites, enjoying the entertainment of the Canaanites, intermarrying with the Canaanites, which was strictly forbidden. He was verbal about that. And they began to bow down and worship the idols of the Canaanites. And that was one of the key things that God was trying to protect them from. Because these idols just lead to evil. They don't have anything that can help your life. And God is trying to point them in the right direction. 
the Israelites were not going along with God's desire for destruction of idolatry in the land. And what they were doing was living out this repeated cycle. If you've studied the book of Judges, then you know that there's this cycle that just kind of goes through each one. There's this time of rebellion. And so in, in chapter 4, verse 1, we see that the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then in chapter 2, or verse 2 of, of chapter 4, we see that there is retribution. There is punishment. God's anger burns against them. And so we read that he sold them to the Canaanites. It's like he just gave them to Jabin, the king of the Canaanites, and said, they're no longer mine, they're yours. You do with them whatever you wish. And that cost them a lot. That brought in some horrible oppression. The third thing that came, obviously, when you're oppressed, when you're being disciplined by God, in their case, being punished by God, then there's repentance, right? And so in verse 3, we get that repentance. The sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, we are told. And I got to tell you, I looked at this all week long, and, and I would love to say that it was just pure and genuine, but... In the same sentence, it says, because the Canaanites had 900 iron chariots. They were fearful, and they cried out. What that does is give us a great picture of God's grace, right? He just wants us to turn back to him, and he doesn't really care about the motive at the time. So there's rebellion, there's retribution, there's repentance, and then there's restoration. And that's basically what we see in verses 4 to 24 of chapter 4 in Judges. We, we see this time of restoration. That's what God's going to use Deborah to do, is to bring restoration to the land, and then a period of rest. And we read at the end of verse 31 in chapter 5 that 40 years of rest came upon the land. That's wonderful. So we want to look at the restoration time period here in chapter 4. It's 20 years that the Canaanites have oppressed Israel with a heavy hand. Israel, Israel has been exploited and oppressed. Men are afraid to go into the fields to work their crops because they're afraid of being assaulted, of being killed. Women are molested. People don't want to travel the highways because they're afraid of being kidnapped or killed. It is a horrible time of oppression for the Israelites for 20 years. So you've got people, young people, that have never known freedom. And you've got older people that have basically forgotten what the, the concept meant because they are in submission to the Canaanites. And the oppression is heavy and it is horrible. Well, Jabin, the king of the Canaanites up north, probably over about a confederation of Canaanite tribes. He's oppressing heavily the, the six northern Israelite tribes. And he moves, he has Sisera, his military general, his brilliant general, move him down. He has him move his army down to the plain of Ezrelon or the Valley of Jezreel, or the Valley of Megiddo. Those are all kind of combined there. So if you can picture in their mind that little notch in the, in, the, in the land of Israel there in the Mediterranean Sea, well, that notch is Mount Carmel. And it looks out over the north and the east of this great valley. And, and over to the 
Directly east and a little bit north is Mount Tabor. Down below is Mount Gilboa and this beautiful plain. Well, he moves them down there, and he moves them down there with the 900 chariots and all kinds of uh, soldiers, infantrymen, all of that. And they have the iron chariots. All of their soldiers are fitted out with iron helmets and they have spears and they have knives and in the chariots most of the time they would travel with two in the chariot one would be the driver and one would be a long archer and so they were built for war so imagine this you've been oppressed for 20 years you are scared to death you're living in fear you don't want to leave your house and then you get word that they're sending maybe a thousand or more soldiers down to this plane to take it over. Well, the truth was, by that time, most of the Israelites were living up in the hills and in the mountains as much as they could because the chariots couldn't travel up there as freely. So they get word that they're, they're coming down to the plane here, and, and Jabin has sent his military commander, Sisera, down there. It's at this time that we get the repentance. The sons of, the, of Israel cry out to the Lord, Israel is in desperate need of a leader. Now they have one. It turns out there's one road that's not completely empty. It's the road between Bethel and Ramah. Because on that road sits the judge, the prophetess, the wife, the mother, Deborah. She sits there and she offers wisdom and legal advice and spiritual insight as a ruler and a political authority and one who has messages from God. That's where she is set up, under a palm tree on this highway, so that the Israelites can get to her. She is called out by God as prophetess and as judge, ruler of the nation, to take on a role in a military conflict. Her responsibilities are, are given to her by God. He calls her out and she steps up in obedience to bring about the restoration. So in verses 4 to 24, she's going to be the one to bring restoration to Israel, to, bring, to, to liberate them from their oppressors. People have known her for her brilliance, her insight, and she must have a dauntless spirit to persevere through everything that she's got going on in her life. But as one who trusts the Lord. So the Lord gives Deborah instruction. And I think that here again, why could she add military commander-in-chief, warrior woman to all of her roles at this point? I think she would say, because I can it's because everything I do and say just comes out of my walk with God. It's because I'm trusting God enough to obey him, and I know that he will take care of me and take care of our country. So she gives instruction here in verses 4 to 9. We see her titles again. She gives instruction to Barak. Barak is their military commander. And he is the one that she's going to go to first and say, I want you, here's what the Lord wants. I want you to go up and get 10,000 men and put them on Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor, they're on the northeastern edge of this valley, this plain where...
the Canaanites are gathering. Uh, I want you to gather them mainly from Zebulun and, and Naphtali because they're the most motivated. They're up on the northern edge. But hopefully all of Israel will take part and, and join you as we go into war with them. The Lord gave her instruction. She gave it immediately in obedience to the Lord. And what we discover is a principle that we see all throughout Scripture. I think she lived by it. I think it was the, the basis of her because I can. I, I think that Barak came to live by it. He was hesitant at first. I think it's a principle that you and I must live by. And it's the idea that God always provides divine power for his divine directives. The, the task in front of you and me as we serve God is never greater than the power behind us, the power in us through the Holy Spirit. Here's how she says it to Barak in chapter 4, verse 6. Behold, the Lord God of Israel has commanded, go and march to Mount Tabor. And take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. And then she relays God's promise. Verse 7. The Lord says, I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hands. The task ahead of you is never greater than the power behind you. God always supplies. He always provides. He always gives the strength to carry out what he commands, what he asks us to do. We're not going up against the Canaanite army. But on a daily basis, we fight the flesh, the world, system, and Satan himself. We have all kinds of difficult circumstances. And we are told again and again throughout Scripture, my favorite promise is the promise of Jesus. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. We're given that throughout Scripture. So it's not just here in the book of Judges for this simple idea of going against the Canaanite king and his commander. Paul informs us of this truth in a different way in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. I really like this passage. He says, not that we are adequate in our, ourselves to consider anything is coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Our adequacy is from God. Divine provision always accompanies divine will. So we got to remember that promise. Where God has called us to be, this is a follower of Jesus, as a spouse, as a parent, as a friend, as a, an employee, as an employer, God always gives us the strength and ability to carry out his will. Well, there's a hitch here. She gives the command to Barak. She gives the promise to Barak. That ought to be good to go, right? I mean, that ought to be really emboldening. But just like we hear these promises and principles all throughout Scripture and we still struggle, so does Barak. So he, he's a little hesitant in his faith here. It's sort of like, I believe, help me in my unbelief. And so he says, I will go if you'll go with me. That's what he says to Deborah. 
I will go if you will go with me. The, the big warrior chief, the general, the military commander of Israel says, I'll go if you, mother of Israel, will come with me. Now, certainly there are good reasons for that, right? She is the visible presence of God in the land. She has shown great intelligence and wisdom and insight. She is commander-in-chief. And Deborah says, okay, I will come. She wants victory for Israel. But she states her displeasure with him, and she says, okay, because of this, the honor for the victory is going to go to a woman. You would have been in line here if you had just carried out what God has given you to do. But the honor is going to go to a woman here. And, of course, Barak thinks, well, that's fine. That's, that means it's you, and that means we're going to win. And it turns out it's going to be somebody else, as we find out later on. In chapter 5, we also learn which tribes go with and which tribes don't. And it's interesting because there's kind of a roll call in verses 12 to 18 of chapter 5 as, as they fill in the gaps here. And, and what happens is there's, there's about four and a half tribes, the tribe of Manasseh is kind of split east and west, and four and a half tribes that do nothing, want nothing. They're either economically tied up in other ways or they're in cahoots with the Canaanites and they don't want to go against them. And it's interesting because scholars tell us that throughout the Old Testament, those four and a half tribes never do anything significant for God again. They said to God, no, we don't want to help. We don't want to be part of your plan. We don't believe you can come through for us. There were a couple, Judah and Simeon, they were just far, too far remote. But the rest of the tribes jumped in immediately. The tension is building in this wartime account. And again, if you look at the Israelites, they're basically fighting with knives and clubs. They have some spears, but they are in no way built up as a military machine like the Canaanites. And so it's a very scary proposition. And if you were living there, if you had put yourself in there as you study this, you realize this is frightful. I mean, this, there, there's good reason to be fearful here what is going to happen well to add to that we're told in verse 11 that heber the kenite it's a nomadic tribe bedouins today he gives up his loyalty to israel and to god and to his family and he takes his wife and they go north a ways they want to separate and he is an informant for sisera for the commander He's the one that tells Sisera, well, hey, they're moving 10,000 troops to Mount Tabor. He's given away the military strategy of Israel. And so, again, as you're reading this and you're setting yourself in this context, the tension is huge. Well, the men are assembled on Mount Tabor. Sisera has his chariots down there on the western edge of the valley, across the valley from Mount Tabor. And Deborah says to Barak, arise, this is the day that the Lord has commanded to go forth. And Barak immediately obeys. He takes his 10,000 and they go running down the hill in defiance of Cicero. That's phase one of this battle. 
Phase two is Sisera's command, uh, gives a command to begin moving. And so all of these really well-built machines in the military regime of Jabin start rolling toward the Israelites. And it just looks like it's going to be a bloody massacre. But phase three comes in when the Lord dumps rain from heaven. Like we've had for, I don't know, it seems like six months. So you can picture when the ground becomes saturated and you've got a heavy iron chariot and a huge horse hauling it, it begins to sink. And what we're told is that the Lord routed Sisera's army. The Lord routed Sisera's army. It's the same word that is used in Exodus 14 when we're told what the Lord did to Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. He routed them. It combines things like confusion and overpowered. It's the same word used in Joshua 10 when Joshua defeated a confederation of six Canaanite kings down south. The Lord routed. The Lord showed up. Divine provision is always given for divine will, for accomplishing the divine will. Well, chapter 5, again, fills us in on the actual tactics. It's in 5, verse 20, that we read, the stars fought from heaven. Symbolic, poetic imagery of the, the clouds dumping. From their courses, they fought against Sisera, the Israelites. And then in verse 21, the torrent of Kishon swept them away, swept away the army of the Canaanites. So remember, this Kishon River runs basically from Mount Gilboa, where, it, where its headwaters are, all the way up along Mount Carmel to the Mediterranean Sea, right there at that notch. And it's just kind of a seasonal thing. In the wintertime, when there's heavy rains, it becomes like a seasonal wadi, and it gets overflowed, and it, and it runs heavy. But now, the Lord is creating such a storm. In fact, in the poetry of the song, it's compared to his intervention at Sinai. The earthquakes, the clouds form, the rain comes down, and the Israelites win. The Kishon this little gentle winter river sweeps away the army of Sisera. The Lord wins the battle and everyone is killed. But one Sisera, the commander himself, he gets off his chariot and he escapes on foot. What is really interesting about this? And I think this is just God's great sense of humor throughout scripture and throughout our own lives. Baal, the chief god of the Canaanites is the god of rain. He let down his own people because he doesn't exist. God showed that he is more powerful than what they worshipped. Sisera escaped on foot, and as he was heading to Hatzor, the, the, the city up north where Jabin reigned, and, and it was just uh, above the Sea of Galilee there, uh, he, he's heading up north. He goes through the village where Heber has his tent now with his wife, Jael. For whatever reason, Heber is not present. And Jael sees Sisera and she says, come in. You look exhausted. He's weary. He's been running 
on his feet, and he's just seen his army destroyed. So he's exhausted mentally and physically and emotionally, and she says, here, come in. And she gives him some form of milk or curds or yogurt. We can't make it out completely from the Hebrew. But she gives him some refreshment. And then she lets him sleep in the tent under a heavy rug. He's exhausted, and he goes to sleep. And being a strong Bedouin woman... After she, he goes to sleep, he's asked her to guard the tent and tell everybody he's not there if anybody comes looking for him. She goes and gets the wooden mallet that she used to set up the tent and an extra tent peg, and she takes it and she smashes it into his head. She keeps driving it, we're told, in the song, until she drives it into the ground. So there is now a tent peg going from one temple to the other into the ground. Now, I got to pause here and let you know that my wife wanted me to just do JL for one week as a woman of faith. And I do think that she was there on behalf of Israel. But uh, I just don't think most of us men would want to camp again if, <laughs> if we spent a whole message on that. So anyway, back to, back to the story, back to what God is doing. JL believes in what God is doing in the nation of Israel. And she sees this as a gift, as his grace to bring Sisera here. And she kills him. And so now the entire army is destroyed. And Barak comes along because he's gotten word and he's trailing him, trailing down Sisera. And he comes to the tent. And it's at this point that the words of Deborah come true. Barak can't claim the victory here because Jael is the one who killed Sisera. She killed him in her tent. And if you know anything against Near Eastern hospitality, cultural requirements, it went against all of that. But actually he had broken that rule first because he went to her instead of her husband. So she broke that idea of you come into my casa and it is your casa and you are my friend. But she was also abiding by God's word in the law in Deuteronomy 20 to exterminate the Canaanites. It was a time of war. And it's interesting to me that people still debate that topic because this is what God's will was, to defeat the Canaanites. That's what took place. The priority of praise is one more thing that's apparent in the life of Deborah. She's been a, a judge, a ruler, a political ruler with authority. She's been a prophetess, one who would receive God's message and give it to his people. She's a wife. She's a mother. And here, because of who she is in trusting God, because of her focus on him, she immediately breaks out in praise. And so she writes this song in chapter 5, and we're told that it's sung as a duet with her and Barak. And immediately in the first verses, they invite all the Israelites to sing along. And it probably was used in a corporate worship setting, a liturgical setting in future months. In the middle of the song, they, verse 11, they invite everyone to recount the righteous deeds of the Lord. That's where gratitude comes from, right? We did that during the time of communion this morning. We recounted the righteous deeds of the Lord and what he has done in dying and rising again on our behalf, paying a debt that we could not pay. 
paying a debt that he didn't know. But as a self-assent substitute, he stepped forward. That's one reason we talk about counting our blessings on a daily basis or a weekly basis. A great exercise to do as a family. Because we want to be those who show gratitude. And anytime you recount what God is doing, you begin to understand him better and you begin to recount his deeds, his righteousness. And so that's what takes place. God had worked in Deborah and through her to bring down the Canaanites. She had trusted God enough to obey him all along. The Canaanites would never again oppress Israel as an entire nation from that time on. And the song ends with this refrain in verse 31. Thus, let all your enemies perish, O Lord. But let those who love him be like the rising of the sun in its might. And the land was undisturbed for 40 years. The song ended by reminding God's people that those who oppose Yahweh will perish and those who love him will prosper. So what can we take away from our life? Well, the trajectory of Deborah's life was to step up and serve at every level, at every moment. It didn't matter. We don't see her hesitating. We're going to see, Lord, let me pray about it. We don't see anything else other than I'm ready to serve. And that tells us that she was prepared in private to act in public, that she was a woman that was a strong leader because she was focused on God. She was trusting him. Everything that she did just came out of her walk with God, her prayer life, her knowledge of God's word, her listening to him. God isn't calling us to lead an army against the Canaanites, but he is asking us to serve him in our sphere of influence. He de desires that we not be immersed in, in a world full of greediness and self-centeredness, but we'd be willing to serve in whatever capacity he calls us in. I had a woman tell me that this morning before ABF. Hey, I got an idea and I'm willing to serve any way that God brings about through this idea. That's incredible. I believe the common thread throughout Deborah's life was a deepening trust in God. And I believe that that trust in God caused her to recount his deeds and to be filled with gratitude, which filled her with joy, which filled her with love and let her experience all of God's love and joy and caused her to be ready to obey him. And so what we used to call first time obedience with our children when they were little. I don't know why we called it that. I guess it was just fun to laugh at the fact that it never happened, but <laughs> just kidding, Nate. As a result, she experienced a very blessed life. She experienced God's provision every time she obeyed God's directive. And she was willing to trust God enough to obey him. I don't think all her roles caused her any anxiety and concern or great anxiety and concern. I believe she simply trusted God. Each step of the way as a judge, she trusted his word and he supplied the wisdom and the spiritual insight that she gave out. As a prophetess, she willingly passed along his word to Barak and others to protect her nation. She didn't keep it to herself. She didn't try to monetize it. She didn't try to build herself up. She just gave out what God gave her to give to the people. 
as a mother and a wife. She carried on trusting God to sustain her in the daily demands of family life. And as commander-in-chief, she was willing to listen to the Lord and obey him. <laughs> Despite looking at the odds and saying, there's no chance that we can defeat this army. Deborah's loyalties were given to the Lord. She was a heroic, gifted woman who served in a wide variety of capacities. And I think it's because of her trust that she could say, because I can. That's why I do all these things. And I think that we have to be careful when we think about applying this in, in our circumstances, in our difficulties, in our life. We have to be careful not to celebrate trust and obey. Great old song, right? I learned as a children. I guess we don't sing it anymore. But we don't want to separate those because we want a life that trusts God to just be one that obeys God. We don't want to go around saying, yeah, I trust God. Jesus is my Savior. We want to be a people that get to experience his rich blessing, experience his empowerment for every need because we're willing to obey to do what we know that God wants us to do. And when you think about that, there's an awful lot that we know that God wants us to do in our relationships, in our work ethic, in our walk with Jesus, in our kindness, in our honoring of others, in our ability and willingness to give grace. We could go on and on. So as you think about Deborah this week, as the Holy Spirit brings to mind, I just invite you to think about that phrase, trusting God enough to obey him and how it played out in her life. God has given us his word to motivate us, to challenge us, and to transform us. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for the awesome privilege of remembering your death today in communion and of seeing this incredible woman that you crafted for that time period in the, the judges and for our lives today as we see a woman that was used so mightily and greatly of you and, and never seemed to be puffed up or concerned but just enjoyed walking with you and seeing what was next on this grand adventure of the faith journey that you have given us. Give us the grace to walk with you in closer ways this week and to be willing to bring trust and obey a lot closer. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's stand together.
tempts me to despair and tells me all the guilt within upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin because the sinless Savior died my sinful soul is counted free for God the justice satisfied to look on him and pardon me to look on him and pardon me
with chains around us By your grace we are no longer bound No longer bound You called me out of the grave You called me into the light You called my name and then my heart came alive Your love is greater Your love is stronger Your love awakens, awakens, awakens me this week or today have a good week <laughs> I've walked among the 